Evening, pal. Evening, Dan. How you doing? Yeah, all good, thank you. All good. Uh, was, yeah, we had, a, we had a week off, didn't we? So, um, you feeling refreshed, ready to go? Indeed, I'm indeed. Not much happened in the sports world whilst I was off. Uh, just a quiet international break, as, as per. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. There's some interesting things on the horizon, I think. So, yeah, plenty to um, plenty to chat about as always. Yeah, and I think uh, the the big one, obviously, is is Newcastle uh, and the takeover of Newcastle, which I think caught everyone a little bit by surprise. I think um, most people assumed it would either be something that was either dead in the water or would be kind of drawn out over quite a long period. Of um, but it's been quite, I mean, it's been quite a story to unpick. It's not been the most straightforward story, I think, for people to follow in many ways. Um, but I'm quite interested to understand a little bit more around, there, there are obviously two things going on that were preventing the sale. One was the uh, piracy um, of being sports and through BRQ that, that Saudi Arabia, the state had backed. And there was also the issue of whether the Saudi state was, was on the PIF um, board was, was kind of representing the, the, the club with, within PIF. And I think those two things are probably more intertwined than seem to come across. So I'm kind of interested to learn a little bit more around how this whole thing got resolved. Well, yeah, you, you and me both is the truth because, you know, there was, so, I think a lot of people, if we if we go to from last week, a lot of people were sort of caught by surprise that things um, escalated and really concluded so dramatically so quickly. Um, you know, I think when when you look back in hindsight now to what appeared to be the the, the main set of issues, as you talked about, one was obviously the, the geopolitical situation involving Qatar and, and Saudi Arabia back in 2017 where effectively you know Saudi Arabia Egypt UAE cut ties with with Qatar and and the reason why that was obviously significant as you said is because you know Qatar um, state effectively has very close ties to uh, be in sport be in sport um, you know a global broadcaster um, uh, paying lots of different rights holders including the Premier League huge amounts huge sums to broadcast um, you know exclusive games in territories and so <clears throat> you know not necessarily just the Premier League, but F1, FIFA, etc., um, you know, being paid huge amounts of money to be able to broadcast games in a lot of Middle East territories, including um, Saudi Arabia. And, um, you know, effectively what happened in that sort of geopolitical storm of mid-2017 was that, um, as well as cutting ties, Saudi Arabia and others uh, more or less cut um, the bean feed into their territories. And out of that came be out queue which was allegedly and it was proven but under the wto arbitration which we'll talk about in a bit of time the, the pirated feed from um being sport and the reason why then that is significant is because on one hand you have um uh, the qataris who um with their extremely close connections to be in um on the other side you have um them complaining about um the the saudi broadcaster that supposedly pirated all of these rights including premier league rights and, and that entity or an entity very close to um saudi through exactly as you said the saudi um, public investment fund the pif which is the so sovereign wealth fund of um of mohammed bin salman um was the very entity that was allegedly pirating um these pictures so you know the the, the odd situation a while back is that you actually had the premier league siding with qatar providing evidence to the WTO big dispute arbitration against um, the Saudi broadcaster um, with links to uh, the Saudi sovereign wealth fund and the state um, who indeed were trying to buy 
one of the clubs that they were allegedly um, reducing in value because of the, the piracy across the Middle East. So you had this really interesting, obviously, geopolitical situation going on. You had at the same time a really tete-a-tete around what seemed to then be all of these cases that were brought by Newcastle post, you know, the takeover looking like it was dead in the water, um, a Premier League arbitration and um, a matter being brought to the Competition Appeals Tribunal, basically arguing that there was breaches of competition rule around, rules around dominance and um, exploiting particular um, abusive positions. And, um, you know, you had the Premier League effectively saying that um, there are problems with the entity passing the owners and directors test, whether that's because of piracy issues, whether that's because effectively under the owners and directors test, um, any entity has to provide uh, can't be providing false or misleading information about what's what's happening or what's going on in the market. And, you know, we fast forward to, um, well, last week that the big announcement happens that um, firstly, the international arbitration between BN and BRQ has been resolved, however much money has been um, provided by a settlement, um, and that Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabian government and or the, the powers that be in Saudi have agreed to um, effectively switch off BRQ and allow BN into um, Saudi Arabia and presumably among other um, Middle East states as well. So, you know, effectively, Qatar gives the sign-off, um, then Newcastle and the new owners effectively give the EPL some type of legally binding commitment that states they're not going to meddle in the affairs of Newcastle, and things move pretty quickly. So I'm, I'm, I've given quite a long-winded answer, Omar. I'm sorry, but it was yeah. There's, and there's a few things to unpick within that, even in truth. But um, that's the at least the, the background starting point. Yeah. So it was. I think people understood the the points around the piracy and. Um, the representation within PIF to be separate, but they they were actually entangled, weren't they? And, and it meant that ultimately the Premier League's position was they weren't going to endorse an ownership that had been involved in piracy, and the the they knew that the ownership was <clears throat> um, was was Saudi backed, um, and therefore the moment that it, it was the kind of the, the distance, well, not the distancing, but the ending of the piracy that. Um, that led to the deal going through, which I think a lot of people, certainly when I was initially reading it, it in, a lot of people were indicating that it was red herring, the piracy, but actually it was central to it. I, th- I think that's right. And, you know, I think um, you can go into particular details of obviously the awkwardness of the Saudi state potentially, um, you know, uh, or, a, you know, the fund very close to the sovereign, uh, Saudi sovereign state buying into Newcastle at the same time of being, you know, um, again, awkwardly uh, involved in particular piracy issues impacting, um, you know, the the Premier League. But, you know, I think there's probably um, a couple of wider points in all of this, which is, you know, um, there's, there's a huge amount of geopolitics going on. Um, you know, Man City owned by, uh, you know, the Abu, Abu Dhabi and UAE, uh, PSG owned uh, Doha via, you know, Qatar, um, now, um, you know, the, the, the PIF, which is, for intents and purposes, the sovereign wealth fund of uh, Mohammed bin Salman, um, owning owning Newcastle. So you have three of the, the extremely large, you know, um, Middle Eastern sovereign states having, um, you know, a pretty big say now in European football in lots of different ways, obviously through City and PSG and now um, Newcastle. So, there's there's lots to unravel by way of geopolitics and um, by way of sort of in my sense the framework and regulatory environment that everything had to be filtered through if that's piracy if it's the owners and directors test if it's um, the political landscape within the premier league to understand how 
either the deal unraveled or quickly the deal escalated to a conclusion pretty quickly. Um, and, and I, you know, I find it just generally quite fascinating how all of those things come into the mix when you're talking about, you know, the purchase of, you know, a Premier League club, which to all intents and purposes, you know, whatever the final price was, £300 million, pounds, you know, by, um, by revenue generation isn't a huge um, company, really. We're talking maybe a few hundred million pounds worth of revenue per year. I'm not saying that's not the case with lots of other football clubs. That's it. That is the case. But when we're talking about investments, usually a big sovereign funds, they're spending considerably more than that amount of money on um, you know, investment um, opportunities. And here we have obviously something that's incredibly politically sensitive, um, f- affects local communities as it does with Newcastle significantly, and then leads to um, you know, a lot of um, significant discussion around you know, issues like sport washing, around um, regulatory um, upheaval. You know, we we're talking previously all about you know, independent reviews, um, fan-led reviews of you know, regulatory change and everything else that's coming along, especially in this pandemic time. Be a question maybe for you, Omar, more generally, is that you know, in a pretty depressed um, transfer market, I wonder whether you know, the modelling for a, a new big club to be able to come into the market um, with spending power um, you know, um, probably has some established and non-established European clubs um, almost licking their lips to a degree on um, you know, the buying power of um, you know, a new kid on the block perhaps. Yeah, I think um, obviously there, there, there's a number of considerations to the sale. Um, but, but thinking about the sporting implications now that it's gone through, I think um, the it's a it's a bit of a, it's in many ways a bit of an awkward time. I think if you are any owner taking over Newcastle at this point in time, because the club is in a relegation battle um, and has been for a number of years, um, and there's there's always a question about clubs that have a lot of money to spend when they're in the relegation battle. The most obvious one that I can think of is when QPR spent a lot of money to try and stay up in what I think would have been 2013. Um, or 2012 13, and they ended up spending a lot of money and ended up going down with a huge wage bill. Uh, they managed to bounce back with it, but then went down again, and, and they've, they've really had to kind of completely rip up and change the club since then um, and change the model since then uh, and not spend as much. I think that's a danger where, in order to kind of spend big effectively, the, the club hasn't necessarily been scouting those players over the last. Um, you know, last few years, so they haven't necessarily got a great record on uh, great databases and great information on all, all the potential players they can now sign that would lift them to Premier League mid-table, Premier League European level quality. Um, and so I think this idea that, you know, it's a bit like you know, football manager, you just do a search uh, on a database and you go, okay, these players are, um, you know, tick the boxes and, and let's go sign them. I think it's, um, it's a bit simplistic. It's a lot more complicated than that. And I think, um the, the danger of getting it wrong is, is obviously huge. Clearly, Newcastle would almost certainly bounce back if they were to be relegated, um, if they were to you know, have the backing that they've reportedly got. But uh, it's, it's certainly not the image you want to be going for, is, is to kind of be spending it badly, getting relegated, and then one of those many championship clubs that, that are struggling um, or, or many championship clubs that seem to be overspending on players. Um, so I think, yeah, it's, it's kind of from Newcastle's perspective, I'd be really curious to see what they do this um, this January, because there is a lot of, um, I think, a lot of risk in spending big, and and the fact is that they've obviously managed to stay in the division. Um, over the longer term, I think it's really it's an interesting one for the dynamics of the Premier League, particularly with everything else that's going on in Europe at the moment. Uh, if you look at the performance, obviously, of Real Madrid and Barcelona, of the Italian clubs, and also the financial position of those clubs, really, the Premier League's uh, from a club perspective, the biggest threat competitively are, are PSG and and Bayern Munich, but 
those leagues again we know what's happening in Liga with the with the broadcast rights deal um, the Bundesliga has a new broadcast rights deal but it's never really going to be able to compete with the Premier League Premier League suddenly in a position where it's got huge amounts of relative wealth relative to the rest of, of European football um, and you know six months ago we were talking about a Super League I, I honestly don't think we're a world away from the Premier League itself being a, a European Super League um, in, in many ways if you look at Newcastle you know, if, I, if you had asked me to make a prediction, I'd say in, uh, you know, within this decade, um, certainly, maybe even shorter than that, you'd have Newcastle qualifying for, for the Champions League. You think about the, the size of other clubs and the, and the wealth behind some of the other clubs, including um, Aston Villa being an obvious one, uh, but potentially the likes of Leeds and Everton, uh, West Ham are obviously constantly linked with, with new ownership. You're in a position there where you've got 10, possibly even more clubs when you consider the likes of Est- um, Leicester as well, um, who are genuinely competitive and, and, and you know capable of playing potentially with the infrastructure to play Champions League football. And I think that's a, a in many ways a frightening prospect if you're one of the other leagues in, in European football, not just one of the other big five, but another league generally in European football. Um but but as as kind of fans and followers of the Premier League, I think we're looking at the prospect of, of the league, you know, potentially being a big seven, potentially being a big eight or nine if um if its kind of position is consolidated as being, you know, clearly the, the wealthiest, most stable um, league in world football. I think it's a really good one. And if I just mentioned two other points briefly, which is, yeah, exactly. I mean, the reports this week that a lot of the other clubs are obviously really unhappy, either from a reputational perspective, from a competitive perspective or otherwise, um, on um, on the takeover happening and them being relatively blindsided by it. But I think the other, the other interesting element is, you know, uh, transfer spending, financial fair play, cost control provisions. You know, I think it's likely... If rumours are right that in the next um, year or so, UEFA is going to put in place um, um, wage cap restrictions of percentage of, of turnover, potentially, whether the same might then apply to d- different leagues as well. But I think it's probably fair to say, based on, I think, some um, you know, Kieran Maguire um, stats that I was looking at at Twitter, that you know Newcastle do have some headway to be able to spend significantly over the next few windows because of the profits they previously made in years, because of the um, you know allowable deviation in the Premier League, which is a lot higher, which is over about 105 million over a, a three-year period, which obviously includes transfer fees and wages in terms of losses. So it, it looks like Newcastle do have a little bit of um, runway to be able to play with. But again... It, it's you know you only look at certain clubs over the last few years that have had new owners come in and, and spent big and you know just spending big by itself doesn't necessarily guarantee um, Europa and uh, and Champions League football. So uh, you know I think the, the the winter and next summer window is going to be a really um, interesting um, yeah really interesting action and reaction depending on you know money circulating and then recirculating in either the Premier League and or in um, you know the big the big four other leagues I guess as well. Yeah, it'll be interesting because I. Um... In many ways, financial fair play and all the regulation that, that came about in um, the early part of the last decade was, in many ways, a response to, um, you know, what um, what Man City and PSG were doing in the marketplace in, in terms of the levels of spending that they were bringing in. And um, in many ways, what they have done has become the new norm because the likes of Barcelona, Real Madrid, Man United, and so on kept up with them sustainably or otherwise. Um, it became the new normal, and the, the obviously the, the reconsideration around. Um, regulation now a financial regulation is, is off the back of COVID and a number of clubs struggling but I wonder if you know if Newcastle go and spend 250 million this window and then more you know the next summer whether there is this kind of debate as to what the regulations are and I, I I'm constantly kind of back and forth in my head as to whether 
um, spending cap should be linked to revenue or not, because I, I really do see both sides of the coin. I see the kind of cap, uh, if, you, if you cap it relative to, to revenue, I understand that because what it's trying to do is trying to encourage clubs to be more sustainable, try to grow revenues, try to, um, you know, essentially not spend beyond their means. Um, but I think the flip side of that is that it potentially locks in clubs that have kind of established big revenues. And it's not easy just to click your fingers and, and grow your commercial match day revenue overnight. Uh, and so on the other hand, I do quite like the concept of set, setting a kind of um, hard salary cap at a, at a kind of relatively high number that allows any club to spend up to that level and allows upward mobility, which we know is a big issue in, in European football. Um, so I think it, it, these regulations aren't made in a vacuum. And I'll be really interested to know what what some of the responses are from from clubs who all of whom are, tend to be involved in these discussions with ECA, UEFA, Premier League and so on, what their reaction will be if there's kind of a new disruptor, if you like, in the marketplace. Great stuff. Um, oh, I might switch gears if that's all right and just talk for um, a little bit and just ask questions on, because obviously it's been um, World Cup qualification, it's been Nations League related stuff over the last few days as well. We've seen Thibaut Courtois come out and say too many games being played, um, think of the players. Um, but in terms of World Cup qualification and, you know, the utility, for example, of particular teams playing Andorra or San Marino, etc. Um, where, where do you stand on it all? Yeah, it's, it's uh, interesting with a few things to unpick. I think um, obviously seeing the Andorra game the other night and, and not just um, England obviously winning comfortably, but also Andorra you know, sitting really deep, being relatively, you know, aggressive in terms of um, tackling and fouls and so on. Uh, and there was a lot of um, comment on social media, like, what is the point in these games? And I- I've been kind of battling my head, I certainly don't have the answer to it, but I've been battling my head is, you know, what extent, even the, I know we've introduced the Nations League, which has reduced the number of, um, or, or the kind of the stretched out nature of the qualifiers and, and these types of games. Um, but even then, we still have these qualification systems in Europe that, put have six pots and put teams you know within um you put england not just with andorra but san marino because andorra obviously in pot five um and i i see i totally obviously see the argument that these games are uncompetitive you know national teams learn nothing from them and, and so on um but but i think sometimes it's worth looking at it from the perspective of um the smaller nations um and the value that they get out of playing the bigger nations and i, and I worry a little bit around creating a kind of second class of, of national teams within um, within the world game, partly because I think that creates a bit of resentment between you know, the bigger nations and the smaller nations. Um, but also, I'm not sure it's necessarily healthy for the, um, for, for the world game as well. And I think, OK, I'm not, uh, I'm not saying Andorra kind of sell out massive stadiums and huge ticket revenues from, from England being in town, but I do think there is something for, you know, <laughs> no one chooses where they're born. And, and I do think there's something where, there's, there is something of value if you are a young Andorran, young San Marino, young Luxembourgian or, or whatever the demonym is for, for Luxembourg. There is something kind of special to have these big countries come to town. Um, so I think there's something in that worth protecting. I just think it, it, obviously the, the, the challenge is you either have it completely weighted like a Nations League where you're only playing against teams of the same quality or you have it the other way around where you're playing in an equal amount of each different type of team. But if there's something, particularly as it relates to the qualifiers, that, that's a little bit um, in between. Um, and I, I saw an interesting um, tweet today, which was, I, I mean, actually, Dan, you're probably much more familiar with esports than I am, but there's a big T10, I'm led to believe, a tournament that kicks off or starts or whatever the, the kind of phrase is for esports um, this week. And, and it had a format of like an upper bracket and a lower bracket where uh, within the upper bracket, I presume you had higher seeded teams who 
had a kind of easier route through to the final and you had a lower bracket with harder route through to the final because you'd have teams falling from the upper bracket into the lower bracket. Um, and I quite like that as a concept where, you know, you're not, you're saying to some of the smaller nations, look, you are going to play more games uh, against teams around the same levels. They'll be competitive. They'll be interesting for you. You'll also still have the opportunity to play big teams that fall out of um, the top bracket. And uh, so you'll have the chance to play, you know, a, a Belgium or a Denmark or whoever comes in into that bracket. Um and you'll have a fair route of qualification. Um, and I think there is something potentially to be done there around the qualification because I think England playing San Marino home and away uh, and Andorra home and away, you know, that's four games out of the I think, 10 qualifying games they have, which are just really a total waste of time from a competitive point of view. And um, I think there's there's some potential for reform there. Um, uh, and what's interesting is, you know, you mentioned call to us the, um, about too many games. I mean, obviously, these were games that were going to happen anyway. And um, if, you know, they weren't, they've obviously got two games during this international break. They're playing both. And the second one happens to be a third place playoff, which I agree, you know, has no real kind of competitive value. But otherwise, if you're playing a friendly, probably with a rotated team as well. So um, obviously, there's a lot of discussion at the moment around the international match calendar. And that's being thrashed out and discussed. Um, I agree with the general sentiment with Courtois. But I think in this case, there's two international games during a break. It's certainly better than what we had. Um, during COVID, which was three crammed into a break, an extra day during the break. So, um, yeah, the, I, I still, international football, it still needs, it's, I, I think some of the sentiments are right where, you know, some things um, from FIFA where some things aren't working, but I think there's, there's a, um, yeah, there are some things that perhaps can't be changed at this stage. Oh, well, I'm going to put you on the spot. So I'm just going to give you some warning. <laughs> Go on. Um, it was only because it just got, got me thinking actually about um, just something a little bit innovative or well, innovative in terms of um, EFL comments from um, Rick Parry, the chair, I think that were, were published today around something different, but obviously similar. Because I know how I'm always intrigued by your sort of take on slightly new innovative ideas. But it was the idea that um, uh, the EFL is not um, um, gets necessarily against um, scrapping the 3 p.m. Um, uh, blackout window period for games when their tender comes up for renewal in a couple of years time in 2024 I think which comes off actually before now the next EPL tender um, uh, renewal um, you know my my view for what it's worth briefly is you know I think the UK is now very much the out there in truth in terms of not having games on at three o'clock or the games where televised where they are televised across lots of European countries um, and for example Bundesliga televises all games and they're obviously lower league games as well you know my, my query more generally or a first inkling and maybe it's something we can have a discussion on in the next few weeks or otherwise is you know what's your view of those types of in a way interventions slash restrictions in the market for you know the lower league argument um you know cannibalizing um you know premier league matches if there's a big game on that they want to televise at a particular time have you just generally had any views or have any views on um you know that type of you know interventionist versus free market approach to stuff yeah i'm um quite traditional i suppose in this sense where i'm kind of a big i agree there's a lot of things in football um that were certainly not designed for modern day the modern day game um but i think are happily exist today one of which was the way goals which i've obviously banged on about a lot um, but i think the three pin blackout is another one um partly because I, I just think there's a, a lack of appreciation just generally um in in english football at least for, for the pyramid and the value of the pyramid and i'm not just talking about the efl i'm talking about you know the entirety of of the non-league pyramid we've got 
unbelievable depth of professional game, but also amateur game and attendances that go down to, you know, a silly level. You go to other countries and you tell people that, you know, people in England watch game, you know, you get hundreds of people watching games in the seventh, eighth, ninth tier that they, they can scarcely believe it. And I think it's, it's so worth protecting that. Um, and, I, and I think there's a danger where you go, okay, well, let's scrap the blackout for a bit, see what happens to attendances. Tendencies at that level aren't going to change overnight. You're still going to have a loyal support space that goes to that level. But what happens to the, for me, what happens to the kind of eight, nine, 10 year old kid who, um, you know, may, um, you know, pre-blackout um, or, or with the blackout have, have gone to those games, you know, post-blackout post -black being removed, and probably, you know, probably is more inclined to sit at home and watch, um, you know, Man United versus Newcastle or, or whatever it is. Um, and, I, and I do think the effects would be seen over a much longer period of time, a, a period of time that you, you really realistically couldn't measure uh, or do any kind of existing data analysis on. Um, so I'm, I think the pyramid is the best thing about English football um, in general, and, and I think it's absolutely worth protecting. I actually hadn't seen that EFL news, so I have to, have to read up on the comments. But um, yeah, it's, it's got, it's almost like a, a UNESCO heritage thing for me, the, the pyramid um, in English football. It's this kind of bizarre thing that, that you know, people watch at all levels. And, and I think having spoken about you know, earlier in the show, the um, wealth at the top of the game, I think there's huge value, not necessarily monetary value, but kind of cultural value at the bottom of the game that's worth protecting. And I think the blackout does that. Um, and there are perhaps other things that could be done to do so as well. I think it could be a very nice, um, broader discussion on a few of those type of topics in the next few weeks. Mate, great to chat as always. We're at half past. That was quick. Nice. Cheers, Tan. Catch you next week. Take care. Thanks. Thanks for listening. You can follow me on Twitter, TikTok and Instagram at Football Law. Read my blogs and listen to my previous podcasts via my website, danielg.com forward slash blogs. Please do subscribe to the Dundeal Football Podcast. Like, share and tag me. If you like the content, if not my voice, you'll probably also like my book Dundeal, an insider's guide to football contracts, multi-million pound transfers and Premier League big business. A bit of a mouthful. It's available to buy in hard copy, digitally and via Audible. All links are in the podcast show notes. Lastly, the podcast is powered by 13, which is a fashion brand I've started. All proceeds go towards cancer charity research and particularly the stellar work done by John Krell, who has helped my mum through some difficult times over the last few years. You can take a look at the merch and hopefully buy a t-shirt, hoodie, cap, or all three. Please do spread the word and go to 13shop.co.uk. That's 13shop.co.uk. Thanks for listening.